Now you may have heard the outcry about Dominic Cummings, chief advisor to the Prime Minister of the UK, the mastermind of their coronavirus strategy. You know, stay home, save lives, protect the NHS. He travelled 400 kilometres to northern England during the coronavirus lockdown. Do as I say, not as I do. Now, hypocrisy is a horrible thing. No one likes it. We are very quick to call it out when we see it in others. However, we rarely, if ever, want to face the fact that for every finger we point at others, there are at least three pointing back at us. Now, if I'm honest, confession time here, I am a hypocrite. There are things I know I should do and I don't. There are things that I do and I know that they don't line up with the reality that I stand for. Reality and appearance don't match up. Now, most if not all Christians, will not be surprised by this observation. Not because they know me, but because they know what the Bible teaches. We know that hypocrisy is in the heart of every human being. That our best aspirations are rarely realised. Unless we set the bar really, really low, we inevitably stand with the hypocrites. As Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But this is not an excuse. It's unattractive, but as a Christian, the stakes are higher than merely cosmetic. God has called us through the gospel to be part of his people, to be citizens of his kingdom, and as citizens, we are his representatives. We are called to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, and as we will see today, we are called to bring people to praise our King. And ultimately, it's not our standards, but His that count. So the big question for us, how can the reality of our lives be brought into line with our calling? How can the gap be closed? How can we grow to become who God has called us to be? We're going to explore this question from our passage in Philippians 2 this morning, and Andrew's going to read it for us. Thanks, Andrew. Morning, Trinity Brighton. My name's Andrew, and I'll be bringing you this morning's reading. And it comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. That's Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labour in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering 
on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Now there are four points this morning. Four W's. Wonder, work, witness and worship. Now our passage this morning in verse 12 starts with therefore. As a much younger Christian I can remember the preacher at our church constantly asking us what is the therefore therefore? Now it's a great question to ask and here it links us back to chapter 1 verse 27 and then the following encouragement to perseverance to unity and humility. Our section this morning brings this whole section of the letter to its climax. So let's briefly recap. Hopefully you'll remember the key verse for this passage that Matt helpfully translated for us. He drew out the idea of citizenship that is there in the original. Whatever happens, Paul writes, live out your citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul stresses that we are citizens of the kingdom of God. We are subjects of the king all through the gospel of the Lord Jesus. This comes with benefits in the here and the now, and he lists some of them in chapter 2 verse 1. The encouragement that comes from union with Christ, comfort of his love, the sharing in his spirit, the being the objects of his tenderness and compassion. But it also comes with responsibilities that we might live in a manner worthy of the gospel. We are called to live united as citizens of God's kingdom. Remember that Matt told us that Christianity is a team sport. We are called to stand together to pursue the king's agenda. In face of external opposition, yes, as well as in face of internal division. And the answer, Paul says, is to be found in humility. He calls us to take our eyes off ourselves and to fix them ultimately upon Christ. Christ who is our ultimate example and saviour. He is an example, but we cannot overlook the fact that this magnificent act of humility was done for us. We are its beneficiaries. It was for God's glory, yes, but also for our good. So this call to unity, to perseverance, to humility, easy, just comes naturally, simply falls into place. Well, not really. It's hard work, as Paul tells them in verse 12. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, this might surprise you. He's calling them to work. But a literal translation of this makes it even more stark. He writes literally, with fear and trembling, work to achieve your own salvation. Really? Is Paul telling them to work for their salvation? If this was true, he would be contradicting the very centre of his teaching. 
and pretty much all that the Bible more broadly asserts, that we are saved by grace through faith and not by works. Have a look at Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. And this, however, is not the only part of Scripture that says something like this. Peter says something similar in 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 10 and 11. He encourages his readers to make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. You will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So we've got to recognise that Paul's not having a brain fade. So how are we going to understand this? How does our effort fit in the picture? And what does this have to do with grace? Well, to answer this question initially, I want to ask you another question. If you're a Christian listening to this this morning, I want to ask you, when were you saved? Now, if we're going to grasp why Paul tells them to work out their salvation, to achieve their salvation, we need to understand how the Bible answers this question. So when were you saved? Now, the obvious thing is to think of your conversion experience, the time when you turn to God with repentance and faith in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see the Bible speaking this way in Acts chapter 2. Verse 47 writes, And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved, those who were making a commitment. But this is only one way that the Bible speaks of salvation. The Bible also speaks of us being saved when Christ died and rose again. Paul says it like this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. He writes, God, who is rich in mercy, he made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. With Christ. But there's also a future dimension to salvation. The Bible tells us that we will be saved when Christ returns. So Paul to the Philippians in chapter 1 verse 28. He writes, this is a sign to them, their opponents, that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved. Future. But as you may guess from the diagram, there's still another aspect of salvation. There's the past, I have been saved from the penalty of sin through the cross. The future, I will be saved from the very presence of sin when Christ returns. And here in this passage, Paul's focus is on the present. The ongoing application of the victory of Christ in our lives. We are being saved. This is the process that the Bible also calls sanctification. Being made holy as our God is holy. Putting off the old self and putting on Christ. Of being transformed into the likeness of Christ. 
Paul is not saying that we should work for the forgiveness of sins because Christ did that on the cross. Or that we should strive for our final deliverance to earn it because that is ours when Christ returns. But he is saying that we have an essential role to play in the here and the now, in the present of our salvation, closing the gap between our lives and what it is we are called to be. But that raises another question. Is this God's work or is it ours? And if it's my work, how does that not still destroy grace? Now, this is an issue that Christians have not always got right. Some have said, it's all God. You know, you might have heard, let go and let God. These people, they stress God's sovereignty and his grace. Still others have said, you know, it's up to me. I'm saved by grace, but now I stay in and I grow by my effort. And these people, they emphasize human responsibility. And still others said, well, actually, it's a bit of both. I do this bit and God does that bit. Now, that's a bit closer to the truth, but it's still not right. So let's look at what Paul says it is. See, in verse 12, the focus is on us. The call to continued obedience, then the call to action, to work it out, to bring about their own salvation. But then he rolls straight into verse 13, where the focus is all on God. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So how do these two things, the focus on us and the focus on God, how do they sit together? Well, the Christian author John Murray, in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, says it like this. God's working in us is not suspended because we work, nor our working suspended because he works. God works and we also work. But the relation is that because God works, we work. All working out of salvation on our part is the effect of God's working in us. The more persistently active we are in working, the more persuaded we may be that all the energizing grace and power is of God. So what's Paul's answer? Well, it's both, but not I do that bit and God does this bit. God's work comes before any action on our part and his work inspires and empowers our work. We work because he is working. And the more fruit we cultivate, the more we produce, the more we can be convinced that we are grafted into the true vine, that it is his life that works within us. The more we want to do our Father's will, the more we want to please Him, the more confident we can be that we are members of His family. The more we seek to honour and obey our King, 
the more assured we can be that we are citizens of his kingdom. When we see change, when we have a desire to do his will, when we feel remorse and seek to turn from sin, it is a sign that he is at work. We can have confidence, but we should never be complacent. Work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So how do we do this work? Well, it's a matter of attitude and action. Verse 12 tells us we are to do it with fear and trembling. Now, possibly this is not the way that we are used to thinking about our relationship with God. But we must remember that God is God. And while he is our Heavenly Father, he is also the Sovereign Lord. And so what Paul is encouraging here is not fear as in anxiety, but reverence and awe and respect. In the Old Testament, we see Isaiah who sees the Lord high and exalted, sitting on a throne in the temple, and he declares... I am ruined because he's seen the Holy One. Ezekiel sees the Sovereign Lord in a vision and he falls flat on his face. God is awesome and we should have reverence and respect. But there's another attitude here. At the end of verse 13, we read that God is working in us. The NIV puts it, to fulfill his good purpose. But that makes it to sound like it's just to achieve his goal. But the original words say, for his pleasure. Now this is the same word that is used by the Father about Jesus at his baptism when he says, with him I am well pleased. He works in us, Paul says, that we might work for his pleasure, that he might delight in us. Psalm 147 verse 11 tells us the Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. So there is attitude, fear and trembling, a desire that we might please him. But there is also action. Paul tells us that our growth, our sanctification, our working out of our salvation is linked to obedience to his word, to holding firmly to the word of life. This is consistent with the testimony of scripture. Psalm 19 verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul, the statutes of the law are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. We obey so that we might live lives that bear witness and result in praise. That brings us to point number three, witness. Now, this transformation... This narrowing of the gap between the reality of our lives and who God has called us to be, it bears witness. Grace 
leaves a mark. Now, Paul tells them here to do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become pure and blameless, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Now, you probably hear echoes of Jesus' words in Matthew 5, where he says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now our Father in heaven, he calls us, he saves us, and Paul tells us he is at work in our lives so that we might be working to will and to act for his pleasure. And this bears witness to his glory. This transformation bears witness to the power of the word of the King. In verse 16, Paul points to the fact that it identifies that his ministry is valid. But behind this, it shows the power of God's word, which Paul preached in his ministry. The power of that word to shape and equip God's people for works of service. So we can be confident, but never complacent. We rejoice that the one who began a good work in us, he will carry it on. But we listen to the warnings. You see, Paul here speaks of grumbling and arguing. And he's drawing on the experience of Israel in the Old Testament, in the desert. And he uses it as a word of caution for those who murmur against God's will. For those who see that seeking God's glory is just an optional thing. But ultimately, his glory and worship of him is our focus. So Paul concludes this section with thanksgiving. Verse 17, he says, Even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. And so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Now the language here is priestly. Sacrifice. Service. These words are used to describe the function of the Old Testament priests. And Paul even tells us that the life that flows from our faith It's an act of priestly service. He speaks of his own life and ministry in priestly terms as well. It's a drink offering. This was the wine which was poured over the sacrifices as they were burnt on the altar to produce an aroma pleasing to the Lord that he might delight in them. Now we gain incredible insight into how we should think about our lives of citizens of the kingdom. Paul tells us that our lives 
working out our salvation, our lives of obedience holding to the word of life, are an offering of thanksgiving. All of our lives lived like this is to be worship. And so worship is not just about when we sing. It's not just the religious stuff that we do. Our worship is when we are obedient to his word in the mundane and the ordinary. It is both adoration. Yes, it is singing his praise. Yes, it is declaring his greatness. But it's also action. It's obedience to God's will. It's obedience to God's word in the ordinary things. We worship when we are patient with that person. Yep, you know the one. We are, we are worshipping when we show love and care to others. We are worshipping when we forgive or when we seek forgiveness. We are worshipping when we seek reconciliation. When we work to combat injustice. When we care for those on the edge of our community. It is worship when we serve others in ways that they may never be aware of. It is worship when we uphold the truth. This is worship. Worship is adoration, yes, declaring his praises. But it is also action. The obedience to his word. The working out of our salvation with fear and trembling. Now Paul tells us we are to live lives worthy of the calling we have received through the gospel. We've been saved and we are being saved as the fruit of that victory that Jesus won for us on the cross. The fruit of that is applied in our lives by the Spirit. Seeing us transformed, God working so that we might work and the gap between who we are and who we are called to be is narrowed. Our lives are to be lives lived as sacrifices of thanksgiving to God, not to earn his blessing, but to bring him delight because he has blessed us in Christ. They are lives of sacrifice of thanksgiving to God as well as lives of witness to the world, to his power and majesty and glory. We are called to shine like stars, to be the light of the world so that the world may see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven, bowing the knee, confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord.